Welcome to Title Talk, a podcast where we discuss all things real estate, from title-related issues, entrepreneurial up and downs, mortgage lending, and more. Now, your host of Title Talk, Claude and Bob. Welcome back to Title Talk with Bob and Claude, episode five with Scott Drennan. This podcast is brought to you by Texas Title University, educating the real estate community one class at a time. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have Scott Drennan. Scott is Vice President Innovation with Bell. Scott has been with Bell since 1993 and has a Bachelor in Science in Aerospace Engineering from the University of Maryland. He also holds a Master's of Liberal Arts from SMU. His career focuses on advanced vertical takeoff and landing technologies and configurations, including work on the V-22 Osprey. Scott also is a member of the NASA Advisory Council Aeronautics Committee. He's married with two beautiful daughters, is an avid Eagles fan, and recreational carpenter. Scott, welcome. <laughs> hey, hey, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm channeling my inner George Jetson right. today because what you are working on and what, what Bell is working on is, you know, as a kid seeing the Jetsons fly around whatever mythical uh, city that they did is that's what I thought we would be today. Right. <laughs> All right. So tell us a little bit about how you got into aerospace and you're then uh, getting over to Bell. Yeah. For, uh, first, I'll make a comment about the Jetsons. The, the thing we're going to talk about is actually about 10 years away and the Jetsons were set in 2060. So we're actually ahead of <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> Sweet. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, but aerospace um, was a passion of mine from when I was a kid. I actually um, fell in love with it during a movie with Clint Eastwood called Firefox. And I was already pretty good at math, pretty good at science. And that movie made me really curious about how things fly. So I thought, you know, that's what I'm going to give a, give a try as for my career. And uh, Bell has just given me a lot of great opportunities to try new stuff. And was Bell, was Bell your first and only job that you ever had? Well, I went to University of Maryland, as you said, and I did a co-op for GE Aircraft Engines back in the early 90s. And then I came out of there in 93, went to Bell. I've worked with uh, Bell as a direct employee and a contractor, but I've been with them for the last 20, 26 years now. Tell us what you're working on today. I lead an innovation team, and we're essentially a, an advanced concepts team. We focus on three things. We look at technology, configurations, and missions, because we know if we find some diamonds in the rough in any of those three categories, they're going to inform the other two. And in particular, right now, we're working on air taxis. Uh, these are um, more electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft that are aimed at the rideshare, the commuter, you know, trying to get people from two-dimensional mobility to the third dimension of mobility, which would be flying every day for their normal commuting solutions. But we've got an unmanned logistics platform also that we're working on to try to close that same loop for goods movement instead of the people movement. And then, of course, I, you know, I'm, my internal customer is the commercial business and the military business, so our team works on new configurations and technologies that are germane to their missions as well. All right, so explain to us, you referenced a mission. So pilots and people in aerospace, they refer to missions yeah. where Bob and I would probably reference that as being, okay, I want to go from A to B, yeah. right? So how do, how do I get there? Either get in a car, get in a bus, or get in a train. Yeah. So what what's a mission in the eyes of you and your, your team? Yeah, I think you've described it right. When you think about moving people, the mission is just that. Let's get everybody on board 
safely from point A to point B in an efficient way. So, and what that means is it matches their expectations for time. It matches their expectations for cost. And that's what's really special about these new vehicles. They're meant to be on-demand mobility. You know, we all know what on-demand mobility means on the ground. We're familiar with ride-sharing companies and, and you know, wanting to get places when we want to with scooters and, you know, and hopefully we keep using our feet too. But this is the airborne version of it. And we're using a very unique type of vehicle. We call it VTOL, which stands for Vertical Takeoff and Landing. But it's a special category of that. It's not just a helicopter. It's a vehicle that can fly like a helicopter and an airplane at the same time. So it actually has conversion between those two modes of flight. And we call that in the airspace world powered lift, meaning sometimes I'm on a rotary wing where something's spinning and holding me up in the air. And sometimes I'm on a fixed wing where something's moving forward and holding me up in the air. So is that very similar to the military plane yeah. that you see? My dad was in the Army for 30 years, so it right. brings me back to the base and seeing kind of those helicopters, if you will, take off. Yeah, so the, the particular model I think you're referring to is the V-22, and Bell has been a pioneer in this powered lift category. It goes all the way back to the 50s and 60s. We started with um, an experimental vehicle called the XV-3 uh, with NASA and the Army, then we went into one called the XV-15, which then spawned the V-22. And the V-22 is the only operational powered lift aircraft in the world today. Uh, it's used by the U.S. Marine Corps. It's one of the, if not the most called upon aircraft in all of the military's repertoire. Uh, and it has a great capability to not only serve their mission, but also to do humanitarian missions, particularly around disaster relief where the weather conditions or the conditions on the ground are too tough for other vehicles to get in there. And uh, the V-22 goes straight in. We were on up to our like fifth or sixth generation now for yeah. the Army. You, you mentioned your dad. So Bell's developing a V-280, which is the Army version of the V-22, smaller, uh, but uses and grows on all the technology learning that we've had over the past 50 or 60 years in this category. And these vehicles, the air taxis will be no exception to that. They'll just be smaller versions and more accessible to everyday folks like all of us. So what's the amount of time it takes? You said the V the V22 started in the 50s, but they started flying yeah, the V-22 is more uh, like started in the 80s. The XV-3, the predecessors, were back in the in the 50s. The V-22 took, um, it was it seemed like it was about 20 years or so, and we were really rolling then. You know, when you're doing radical and revolutionary technology like that, it takes time. These won't take as long because of the learning in that category. So on these EVTOLs that we'll use for these air taxi missions, um, we're talking about being ready in the late 2020. So 2028 through 2030, we think there's going to be a certified system that has the proper infrastructure support and the proper regulatory and community acceptance. Uh, there'll be some prototypes that fly way before that and some tech demonstrators that fly way before that. Um, but we think that the real system where, you know, you and I can jump on in the morning instead of 
being stuck in the tollway uh, traffic or out on 183, we'll uh, we'll just have a sweet ride right in. <laughs> that day will be certainly be nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned electric on that. What do you think the distance they'll be able to fly? Yeah. It's one of the issues, I guess, with the Tesla and now the Porsche is, yeah, I think when I read the Porsche this morning goes 200 miles on a charge. What do you think the capabilities will be on, on those yeah. Aircrafts. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's, it perfectly matches uh, one of our challenges. And I'd also like to talk about the opportunities, but we have two versions of our vehicle. Our vehicle family is called Nexus. And last year at CES, we showed a six ducted hybrid electric version. And this year at CES, we showed a four ducted all electric version. And when you think about the difference between hybrid electric and electric, it all comes down to range. So what we did is we fixed the payload, we fixed the speed, the cruise speed, and then we looked at the difference between if I burn some gas, how far can I go? And if I just run on batteries, how far can I go? So in the hybrid electric version, we're talking about 150 plus miles. In the electric version, 60 miles. And remember when folks like, you know, me from, from Bell, you know, a legacy OEM, when we talk about those ranges, we've already baked in the safety factors, the reserves, you know, you'll hear numbers about these aircraft that are longer than that. Well, make sure you, you, you check the fine print <laughs> because yeah, you don't want to mess that the, one the up. The last few feet hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so we're always really honest about the, about the mission because again, like I said earlier, first and foremost is get it done safely. And then second is just get it done efficiently. So, so is Bell, is Bell working towards a full electric model or are they going to, or do you think you'll start with a hybrid? Yeah, we reprioritized. We initially thought the market was calling on that hybrid first and we thought the technology needed it a bit. We wanted to have that gas turbine on board to help us with, um, you know, power available. But as we were working it and, you know, our vision uh, on the innovation team is to always be flexible, listen to the market really carefully and be able to pivot quickly. So we pivoted at the end of uh, 2018 towards electric on signals from the market, on signals from our customers that that was the first thing that had to go. We re-looked again at the technology available and said, yeah, it's ready as long as you're only looking for that 60 miles. You're only looking for about four to five passengers being on board, so 800 to 1,000 pounds of payload. And, um, you know, you could get the, the cost piece down too. And that's the other um, big opportunity. You guys brought up the electric and what does it do for range? And that can be, that's a limiter. But what's really interesting about it is, you know, I'm a guy that's used to working in the upper right-hand corner of the performance envelope of, of aircraft like this. And there's a lot of engineering challenges there. How do you go faster, pick up more, and, and go sure. further? But there's a bunch of engineering challenges down in that lower left-hand corner that revolve around how do you make a vehicle quiet? How do you make it economically affordable? And of course, the mission changes. It's less payload, less range, less speed. In fact, these are pretty fast, actually, faster than helicopters. But it's because of the market. The market's down there saying, you know what? I don't need all the rest of that. I need the economics and I need the, the noise to go down. I need the ease of use to go down um, or go up. And uh, that's what they're asking us to do. And electric really opens that up for you. Claude mentioned earlier, it's like for the, the lay people, we just talk about A to B in that. I have a, a nephew who's getting a PhD at Caltech and, oh, nice. and he was talking about 
I said, what are you studying? He's like, well, batteries. Yeah. I'm like, well, dude, you're, you're way too smart to be doing batteries. <laughs> <laughs> so the layperson, you know, the dumb guy like myself, I'm thinking, you know, Duracells, right? And he's like, no, you know, we're talking about how, how do you get to the moon, the heat ratios and um, okay that's enough yeah so, well it's a, he's well first of all make sure he has my business card because i want to talk to him uh, <laughs> when he graduates um but it's a it's a great topic because batteries start as chemistry so you got to know your stuff that's in what the he, chemistry that's his chemical engineering yeah and then so the, that's where that's where you begin to understand what kind of energy and power per weight Hmm. that a certain chemistry chemistry can produce for you. But the next step for a guy like me is, okay, now how do you integrate it safely into an air vehicle? We call that packing. So your chemistry lab will tell you, okay, you get X uh, kilowatts per kilogram. Well, when you pack it, you have to reduce that by a certain amount. And then um, when you put regulatory considerations on top of it, which are different on the ground than they are in the air, there's another factor. Um, so it's really critical that the folks like your nephew get it right at the chemical level. Then we work uh, as the integrator with our partners to get it right at the aircraft level. And uh, it's definitely a complex, hairy um, part of what we're doing. In fact, some of my smartest engineers are working specifically in that area. Hmm. And then you, you mentioned too, thermal management. That's, it's huge for batteries. Um, and not just uh, don't let them light on fire. That, that's, <laughs> right. a, that's a That'd huge be good consideration. In the and, air. That, and that would be a great thing. <laughs> so you're not using lithium batteries, right? <laughs> well, we are actually, are but you? that's the, we're using lithium ion. And, you just uh, got to take them out of your phone. <laughs> <laughs> just take it out of, out of the Nexus before you get on. Right. You know, but we, we do certain things to it and we understand what happens in those uh, contingency events and we contain those, uh, those events to single or, you know, a small amount of cells so it doesn't propagate. But then thermal management it's even it's bigger too it's how do you get heat that those batteries and motors generate off of the aircraft when you have a gas turbine in the back you got the greatest way to get it out right. of there it just goes out the back <laughs> it's called the exhaust well there's right. no exhaust on a on a pat battery pack so you have to make sure you do that well and how does that work is that through a different type of exhaust system yeah we've fans? got so there's a there, there's a couple different options we have a really uh, special way to do it that we're kind of keeping tight right now but um, think about you know cooling systems whether radial fluid cooling systems or cold plates uh, and then the trick is like, how do you get that as light as possible as well? Because the biggest challenge to the electrification, especially of vertical takeoff and landing that takes four to five times more power than a fixed wing is get the weight out. Everywhere, every engineer on my team thinks about safety first, then weight next. Wow. <laughs> and uh, because, it, you know, we don't have a lot of extra, extra room. Obviously, we're we're very conscious about the environment, yeah. right? So part of, I assume part of the reason you're looking at electric, it's a different type of internal system, but also what about on the environmental yeah. side? What's the shelf life of a battery? Yeah. If you know, in, or what, what is the anticipated shelf life of a battery in, in one of yeah. these vehicles? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you for asking it. You know, we, we do, so everybody knows that an electric vehicle, whether it's a ground vehicle or an air vehicle, operates cleanly, right? Because you're using electricity to move around. 
But if you're being honest with yourself and honest with your community about how you think green about these kinds of things, you have to go back into your supply chain, first of all, and say, where's the material from the batteries coming from? How are they getting it? Where are the materials for the motors coming from? How are we getting it? Then how do you produce the electricity? So different countries produce electric energy in different ways. And then I think to your point, where do they go afterwards? How do we recycle or repurpose? And in vehicles like ours, we're looking at about a 25,000 hour life. So uh, if you Divide that into our goal for yearly usage time, which is about 2,000 hours. You're talking about roughly 10 years. Well, aerospace applications like this have a particular duty cycle that prevents us from totally discharging the battery You know, very frequently. We would normally only do that in an emergency in aerospace. Well, what that means for the future is that our batteries can come off of the vehicle after that 25,000 hours and maybe find a new home on the power grid, on ground applications. And not only is that good for the environment, it's good for the business part of it, right? Because it just adds economic efficiency to the total energy that you had at your disposal in that pack when it came off the line to, to when it actually gets retired and recycled. Who's the leader in the battery business these days? Well, we, we love um, our partner EPS, Electric Power Systems. They're a um, small startup. They were in California at first. Now they're out in Utah. And these guys combine the best of all the worlds I talked about before. They know the chemistries and the chemistries come out of, you know, the big guys like Samsung, uh, Toshiba, Panasonic, but they also know how to pack for an aviation uh, application. And uh, you talk about your nephew being a smart guy. These guys, man, they're, they're a special group as well. Uh, Nate and, and Mike. Mike is, uh, you know, from Rolls. So they brought, uh, you know, a big guest Herman guy in and he made the change as well. So it's really fun to work with them. And we're impressed with them and what they can do for us. What's the goal? So if you're at 60 miles right now, yeah. ultimately in, in eight to 10 years, what's the goal to to get, is it 150, 200 miles or, or is 60 really the max? Yeah, I think, well, it's not the max, but it is our goal even for those initial certified vehicles. And that's based on, that's what our customer is asking us. Now, if and when my engineers continue to take weight out and those chemical engineers that you talked about continue to add energy density to the battery chemistries, we will just use every drop of that to extend the range. We can also play with payload, but once you make your vehicle a certain size, your payload can also be limited at volumetrically. Um, so we would likely take advantage of that in range. I used to talk about that with the hybrid electric um, in order to understand what happens when you get weight out. Well, think of every pound I get out of the aircraft, you put it in there in fuel and every pound of fuel you put on board, your range extends. And it's the same kind of thing for batteries. It's just a different mindset. Instead of saying pounds of fuel, mm -hmm. you usually say energy density. So kilowatt hours per kilogram. So if I, if I change that by 10%, it does a certain thing to my range. And what's neat about batteries, if you look at how they're tracking, I think Nate and, and my gang has been telling me they're improving at three to 4% year after year. And that, that'll probably have some limit uh, due to the physics, but that's a nice number to think about when you're thinking about the future. So sure. we do plot it in 
but 60 is our goal right now. If we get that 4%, uh, you know, year after year, we'll take advantage of it as long as we can, you know, stream it into the design. Nice thing about these vehicles, they're going to, they're going to have, you know, today you fly on a, a helicopter model and it, that helicopter model's out there for 30 or 40 years. These vehicles are going to be out there for 10 years and there's going to be a new version of them. And it's because the tech is going to improve and it's because we want to make a uh, sustainable uh, you know, model that's relevant all the time to our customers' needs. So, and it could even be shorter than that, the turn time. So you're getting more like automobile turn times for models. Do you think that kind of the prototype that you have now and in 10 years would be besides for commercial use for individual use? So let's say... Claude, who's, uh, you know, yeah, he, he likes well to do. He likes like, to fly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he, like, he could have it across the street in his little uh, helipad and utilize it himself, or is it mainly just commercial use? No, you can. I mean, any and our helicopters today have private owners and, and um, you know, commercial use owners, even public use owners. And I think this vehicle will be like that as well. It's not the primary big chunk of the market sure. that we're looking at, but lots of people are interested. When you go to CES, there's a few you know, stars around either in technology or, or uh, Hollywood. And, and they, they love coming over and seeing the vehicle and saying, when do I get one? Cause I want to use it for my, my own stuff. And that's been great. The vehicle will be uh, fly by wire, which means uh, it can be more autonomous. And when you think about autonomy, you can think about it in different ways. So obviously if you take the pilot out, that's a cost item that you've taken out. Not that I don't love all of our pilots, but, you know, it comes sure. down to the economics sometimes. But the one we like to talk about is, is safety. To operate a helicopter or a vertical takeoff and landing uh, vehicle, you've got to be on your game. The, you have to have really high situational awareness. You can oftentimes get overloaded with information or environmental conditions. And if you can integrate a fly-by-wire system into the activities of the pilot and take away all those dumb, dirty, dangerous, and dull tasks and let them focus on our key two things we talked about earlier, safety and mission completion, then you're talking about a whole new world where, you know, I don't know what your particular pilot skills are, Claude, but you can just jump in there and have a system like that behind you um, that can, you know, help you fly the vehicle. And there's really no limits to that because it comes down to software. Hmm. Uh, and if you get the right software on board and the right flight control loops and the right autonomy loops, you know, you might be just going along for the ride more than you're even piloting. So the fly, my understanding of the fly by wire is it basically allows a computer with information based on lasers, GPS to fly the vehicle. Does the Nexus and the system, will it be monitored by, let's say, if not the FAA, will Bell have software that monitors the data that these are pushing out to yep. make sure that it's reading the information correctly? Like, you know, let's throw out the, the 737 MAX, right? Yep. It was computer, or my understanding was it was computer-generated error that caused the pilots to think they were going in a dive or a climb or whatever it was. But it, will there be a system where there's a third-party monitoring the computer system to make sure it's reporting the, the correct information. Yeah, I think that, that's a, it's a really good question. It's a, it's a complex one. So I'll start and then come back to the exact thing that the computer does. So I'll start by saying initially 
we think that there are pilots on board on day one. So that 2028 time period, you're gonna, there's going to be four passengers that get on board and there's a pilot up front. And that's due to um, customer acceptance and regulation. Now, if both of those things solve themselves and we're working to solve them, maybe day one looks a little different. But we're thinking about pilot first. And then you can imagine you're racking up your hours. That pilot comes off. Now you get an extra passenger on board, more of the scale and economics than unlock. And maybe you have a system where now instead of one-to-one, Maybe you have an operator somewhere like a room like this that has 10 vehicles under their watch. And if something goes wrong with one vehicle or something needs to change about one of the vehicles, they can enter the loop. We always call that, you know, getting the man in the loop. And then it eventually starts heading in a stage wise, um, you know, progression towards all autonomous. That's where the computer part comes in. So the computer part, what you're referring to, we call it, you know, envelope restraint, envelope uh, bounding. And you can, in a fly-by-wire system, you can make it so if this is my stick, this microphone, I, and I push it too hard forward or too uh, hard back, the computer can limit that. So that envelope limiting can kick in to help you as a pilot, to help you keep safe, and then just take that same concept and expand it out to every maneuver that you do. So ultimately, we'd like to have a man-machine interface that is intuitive to the man and you know, very technical and competent on the computer side of it. So when you're intuitively pushing forward, what are you thinking about? I want to go faster or I want to go there. And we want to link up you know, artificial intelligence, the fly-by-wire and the autonomy to that intuitive action that the, that the pilots take or the passengers take. And so part of that is, in addition to working on the nexus for commercial use passengers, you guys are also working on a logistics solution yeah. as well that's fully autonomous, yes. correct? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks. So we have another family of vehicles called APT. It stands for Autonomous Pod Transport. They're also powered lift. They take off a little. So in Nexus, you have tilting ducted fans. On uh, APT, you take off like a, a helicopter and your whole body of the vehicle rotates over. So we call that a tail sitter. But same concept, the wonder of vertical flight and the efficiency of fixed wing flight. And right now we're flying a 55 pound version that carries 20 pounds, we call her App 20, and then a 300 pound version that carries 70 pounds, we call her App 70. App 70 is flying fully autonomous missions right now uh, for commercial customers or potential customers in sort of demonstration flights. It's not certified yet. And then also with the military, we were just uh, down in Yuma, Arizona doing a prize challenge for the Marine Corps. So the simple automated part automated takeoff, conversion to airplane mode, waypoint flight, and then reverse to land, as well as beyond visual line of sight, which we've accomplished recently. And then we're adding in detect and avoid, which will help the system avoid obstacles in the air or conflicts in the air. And we're under a contract right now with NASA. It's called the NASA SIO project. We are going to fly AP70, a 300 pound drone 
through what I call the wild, meaning the DFW airspace (laughs) (laughs) on an 18 mile loop. And we're going to cross right through class B airspace, which is the air sports airspace, class D and G. And that's not only to just prove to ourselves, but to show the world that this is possible, that we can operate in more urban environments. You know, it's not a full blown over Manhattan flight yet, but these are the steps that you have to take. And we're really excited about that. And I'm proud of the team for uh, that upcoming milestone in June or July, we should do that flight. So you think that'll become more not useful will get to actual use prior to the yeah so what you have there is you've got the combination of that what we call the con ops the concept of operations that you can do remotely and then maybe urban light and urban heavy and that allows the authorities and you to certify quicker Uh, for the mission of moving goods around. And the other thing, there are so many great goods moving missions. So you can imagine really complex um, third-party logistic networks that are out there. Pick your company, you know, UPS, Amazon, FedEx, whoever. They need these vehicles to shore up the efficiency there. We all want more stuff in, you know, fewer minutes. And uh, this is just a way for them to use a vehicle to move goods around more rapidly. We, We don't think about logistics as we'll drop the soccer sneak in your backyard. We think about it as serving their distribution centers with larger payloads, larger range, so that more SKU numbers can come to you in two hours than previously. Uh, And then when you think about that military mission, imagine um, platoons and squad level folks out there, and they've got their buddies 20 miles out who need water, ammunition, food, or, or other types of supplies. Well, imagine if that's just a 70 pound kit that they need and you have to call back to base for a big old Blackhawk or something to do that mission. Well, one, it's too much aircraft for 70 pounds. It's got maybe some other things to do. And so what do these guys do? They get in their ground vehicles and you know what that 20 mile ride is in these bad places. Right, it's right. terrible. So this is about saving lives there too and letting these vehicles that are simple to operate just do 24 hour, any time of the day uh, runs at up to 70 pounds. We're also building a bigger one in that uh, logistics category uh, and it'll just you know unlock their world of logistics. Uh, Scott, we're going to take a short break. Okay, and we'll great. be right back. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Title Talk. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a five-star rating. And also be sure to subscribe on all major platforms, iTunes, Spotify, and more.